Hello, and welcome back once again to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. Today, my guest is Jay Malone. He is the founder of New Haircut. Now, what is New Haircut, you might ask? Well, they're a design thinking agency. Um, uh, Jay is going to talk to us today about the really very important principle, which I'm hot on at the moment, um, which is that salespeople need to understand that if you apply many of the tools that you already have, which are really in effect design thinking tools, you'll get much deeper understanding of the root needs of your customers. Um, we're going to explore what design thinking is and what the jargon means and how it puts people off and how to overcome that. We're going to look at why design thinking is actually a tool for anyone, but in sales, it is a blessing. It's a godsend because it's really not as hard as you think uh, to get your customer to tell you exactly what you need to provide them by way of information and insight for them to buy from you. And to get you out of the trap of prescription before diagnosis, which is malpractice. And maybe learn a little bit of patience, you know, more haste, less speed, and you get there faster in the end by not pitching, by interviewing the customer and having them really understand their problem at its root causes, because very often they don't understand their problem. What they're doing is they're presenting you with symptoms. And what they don't want is someone turning up, flogging them a widget. So, Jay, welcome. Marcus, how are you doing? Thanks for having me. My pleasure. Would you mind giving the audience a couple of minutes on your history and your background so they understand where you're coming from first? Yeah, sure. So um, I actually came up into starting New Haircut. Years earlier in my career, I started as a software engineer. So my job was to work with salespeople and business people and marketing and work with product managers who were trying to build technology solutions for business problems that they were trying to solve for, make money, save money, something like that. Those are sort of the themes that eventually landed on my plate. And what I started to learn even as an engineer in my early 20s was that the directives that I was given, that sort of like the technology team was given, were always vague and always really centered around what's important to the business, what's important to the company. And there were tools that technology people used, uh, disciplines like Agile, to help move more quickly through that solution space. And that's great. That's well and good. Anything that, that is efficient and moves you faster to a finish line is helpful. When I'm started the company, I took a lot of that thinking and looked at primarily speed. How can we deliver solutions faster? So New Haircut was born on the premise as a development studio. Today, we're a strategy company. But as a development studio, the question was, how can we get these same business directives from our clients out to market really quickly? And so we used the same tools that I was using in my days at Accenture and other consulting firms as an engineer which was Agile. It was all about rapid development of features and solutions. And what I, I came to the realization after doing that for years on end is that we got really good at building and negotiating and building lists of features that ultimately the customer didn't want or need or understand. So we were great at MVPs and fast Agile development of products that served unmet needs. 
And so that felt like a huge failure, a huge waste of time. And we lie to ourselves that like busyness is the same as productivity. So like the faster we move, we must be doing something right. But if ultimately you're solving problems that the customer doesn't care about, it's a waste of time. It's a waste of your time. You feel like your morale drops, you know, you dissatisfy your customer market. And if you do it enough times, you're going to be out of business. So I learned the importance of moving sort of backward along that journey and getting really good at understanding the problem space before moving into the solution space. And that came to me through the way of, I I was introduced to design thinking as a tool to move backward from solution to problem through a very specific recipe that came out of Google Ventures called Design Sprints. So a design sprint, it's a form of design thinking. If a group is interested in taking a problem and bringing it to market quickly, you can use a design sprint to understand the problem together, to come up with potential solutions to it, to prototype it, and to test it with your market. Um, And what I saw was it slashed like fractions. We spend fraction of the time going from problem definition to solution that the customer was waiting for. And so in the, in the world of product development, I saw design thinking become this, this tool that, that really kind of leveled the playing field. We stopped arguing with one another internally, you know, the, the engineer, the designer, the product manager, the tester. We stopped arguing because we had access to an efficient way to, to understand the customer problem. And so new haircut was basically reformed and rebuilt around the, the principles and the frameworks of design thinking. And what I noticed one day in doing my job, so as the, as the owner of the company, a lot of my job is to sell, to sell the services that we offer. And I noticed that I would have these design thinking fueled conversations with customers that were already sold and we would get things to market quickly. And then I put on my sales hat and I would just be demoing and pitching the, the services that we offered and it was just going nowhere. <laughs> so this light bulb went off after, you know, like I felt like maybe Maslow's dogs that learned a little bit too late. It felt after enough times of just failing of just pitching my services, I was like, you know, why am I not applying the same tools to sales that I do to product development? Because it's the same thing whether I'm building a piece of technology that a customer is trying to understand and use, it's the same thing. My services are also a product. My sales process is also a product. So if I look at everything as a product, then any, then design thinking, design thinking can be used for anything. When I write an article, I think about who's going to be reading this. What problem is this article going to solve for them? What you're a fan of jobs to be done. What is the job that this article is going to do to help, inform the customer and then, you know, take those insights forward. And so I started applying the same design thinking practices to my sales process as I did to everything else. And I saw a huge shift in the ability to take those design thinking principles into my sales calls. And now, now it's, it's almost, what's the expression? It's the curse of knowledge, right? So now when I hear (laughs) salespeople and vendors are, are selling me, I want to educate them. I want to say like, where, why, where are you right now? Like we just met, you're, you're pitching me on these services, this product that you're offering. Like first, like why don't, why don't we back up and get clear on wh- who you are, what you want to know about me that, and sort of the problems that you can help me solve. And so that's, 
that's very much the mindset I take into the sales process I use today. And I, I, I think there's so much similarity between design thinking as a product person and design thinking as a salesperson. There's a lot of the same tools that salespeople are already using, which is just really like, I see great salespeople ask great questions. You're halfway there. If you can learn how to ask the right questions and then actively listen, sort of like connect the dots and help that person understand the problem that you're there to solve, then you'll see walls come down. You'll see receptivity. You'll see trust build. And then you're in a much better place for that person to listen to your ideas and your solutions that might solve the problems that are important to them. I saw a talk by Bob Wright at the weekend, and he talked about something called eloquent listening. And it's a wonderful way of describing the interview skill of genuinely, forensically listening to what's being said, what's not being said, and trying to piece by piece understand the connections and the interconnectivity, the interplay, the intertwined nature of the problem. Because more often than not, certainly in my world and the world of most of my clients, and I suspect yours, many of the problems that customers face are what would be defined as wicked problems. They're complex. There are multiple stakeholders. The rules change as you go. Whatever you try first doesn't work. And hopefully the series of non-fatal experiments takes you to something halfway decent. Whatever you eventually come up with is imperfect. There's this constant iterative process. And um, it's messy. It's complicated. And if you don't really understand the problem, then whatever solution you offer is going to be subpar and is probably going to be fraught with dozens of unintended negative downstream consequences. In your experience, how much less downstream friction is created when you adopt a design thinking approach to your selling and qualifying? Significant. So the problem is the starting point. The problem is that it's, it's a change in behavior, of course, there's confusion a lot of the time over what is it, what do we mean by design thinking? It's a strange combination of words to put together. Can you define it? So people need to, yeah, so, so design thinking looks like walking in your customer's shoes. And it starts with moving from a vague understanding of the problems that they have to something that's sharp and more concrete. And once you have a clear definition of an important problem, then you can move into the solution space and together perhaps co-create solutions that will work for them. The challenge is that we start and we start at the end. We start with the solutions that we already have. We ask them all about our solutions. Instead, we have to ask them about the problem, propose that this is a problem that you could help them solve, then move, move them through the solution space. But it's much, it feels faster to jump to the solution. It's something that we're, as human beings, I think we're just wired to do. We're also from social performance, social anxiety perspective, we're afraid to not look like experts a lot of the time, right? So like at some point in human evolution, we learn that asking questions might make us look foolish. When in fact, I've been hired more times than not for asking great questions than coming out of the gate saying, here's, here's this pixie dust that I have for you. Do you want to buy it? Same. What tends to happen... There's a wonderful 
exercise that uh, you see people often do with um, spaghetti, sellotape, paper clips, and you know, other bits and pieces. And the idea is to build a tower as high as you possibly can. I saw a bit of research earlier today where kindergartners managed to generate a tower of 26 inches, whereas the MBA students only 10 inches, which is pretty much the size of a piece of spaghetti, isn't it? And the difference is that the kindergartners just jumped in and they experimented and they didn't worry about form and everything else. But the MBA students were really playing a game of status management. And I think that's what tends to happen a lot in the sale, because instead of just asking the dumb question with that child mind, you're trying to look clever. And I think that's the kiss of death. In the green room, you talked about you know exercising real humility in this process, and that creates lower friction and lowers the barriers. Well, I'm baffled why so much of sales is geared towards the push instead of the pull or power over force i think yeah. it's tempting to force people and i think a lot of it has to do with the time pressure that that we're all under as i mentioned in the green room i've never actually had a, a formal sales position with a manager that was you know like counting the the calls i made and you know success factors on, on the call and all that stuff so I, I feel like that undue stress and time pressure we put on ourselves leads us to believe that the pitch, the demo, is the shortest distance from unsold to sold, where in fact, the shortest distance is, let me create a relationship where you, where you see that I'm here to help you, not here to sell you something. Now you've got my attention. So like yeah. when you start be, with- story, Be my ally, not with... my adversary, and don't be my accomplice. Yeah, right. Okay. Really, really interesting. Okay, so, but the design piece, I'm sure, and you said it in the green room as well, is what causes salespeople to uh, run a mile. Explain why it's not that hard for salespeople to make the uh, the shift in thinking and the shift in behavior, because we're all good salespeople, at least, already doing most of this stuff. G give us some examples of great questioning that comes from design thinking and design sprints that salespeople would be familiar with? I'll give you my experience as learning about design thinking from an engineer's perspective. So engineers, just like salespeople, are extremely busy people. Engineers are very logical. They're very sort of like organizationally driven. Things need to make sense to them before they're willing to commit the time to it. Personally, as an engineer, it benefited me to be more pessimistic-minded, so learning to say no because I was constantly busy and constantly being asked to work on confusing things or things that weren't ready for me to build. I was constantly pushing back on bad ideas. As much as I needed design thinking to actually help me, I was completely resistant to it when I first learned about it because it had this term design in it. Hmm. It felt foreign to me. It felt like a tool that designers did or some smoke and mirrors that required an, an artistic degree. And when I watched people use the tools, I was like, oh, all that this is, is structure. So it's learning to bring the right people together. It's learning how to ask the right questions at the right time. It's learning how to allow a space, like through activity, through conversation, so that people could co-create or decide together where they wanted to go. That's really like a lot of the 
I just covered 90% of what design thinking is all about. It's creating a space for people to get together, understand a problem that they're interested in solving together, which is very different than I've got the solution that you need. So you're going to listen to me, the expert. If you look at it as a salesperson, as more stop calling it sales, start calling it discovery. Like how can we work together and find common ground so that I can help you solve the problems that are most important to you? That's a world different than buy the thing that I'm here to sell you. And the questions are not, they're also not, you don't need a, you know, you don't need a certain degree to ask the question. Tell me what it looks like when you're trying to do this thing. Tell me, tell me what the experience looks like for you today when you're trying to exercise at home, right? Like, so if I was selling a new exercise app or a piece of exercise equipment, what does it look like for you to exercise today? Oh, interesting. Okay. So, and what's, what's hard about those home workouts? Got it. Okay. And what do you do about that today? How do you solve those problems today? Okay. How important is it for you to have a different set of solutions? And that's a magical question right there because they may say, I'm fine. I really don't need any other solutions. I've tried X, Y, and Z. I'm happy with this thing. And maybe what you learn is that's going to be a, a person that doesn't really have the problem. If you hear it enough, you may start to learn that you're solving a problem that doesn't need a solution. And that's a hard pill to swallow. But wouldn't you rather get to an, an important problem rather than trying to shove a solution down a person's throat of a problem that, that they don't need help with? My, so there's some maturity that goes along with design thinking. My pal Jerry Lemberg always used to describe entrepreneurs as people who produce elegant solutions to problems that don't exist. I see that very often where people go out to market and what they've done is they've thought, you know, this will make us some money. And they've come up with this brilliant idea, which is brilliant in their head. But when they go out to the market, the market doesn't require it or the timing is wrong. Tablets. I remember the Apple Newtons when they came out and there was all this hoo-ha about, you know, do we really need all of this? And yes, we did. But what we needed was a better interface and um, you know, more memory. So the timing was wrong. Now they're ubiquitous. It's often a matter of having the patience and the insight to understand when you should be speaking to a customer about specific problems and solutions. And you're only going to understand that by speaking to your customers and listening to them, because they will tell you. So again, we have the right to ask these questions, but I think a lot of salespeople get very nervous about asking questions that feel maybe too simplistic or a little too personal. And certainly from the interview style. I'm very interested to learn the human side, the soft skill side of how you deliver these questions in a way that comes across as being their ally, as being nurturing and creating a safe environment where they can be vulnerable and drop their guard. Sure. Well, I think a great place to start is, I think, I always like to tell people like, this call is about me figuring out if there are problems you're experiencing that I'm actually qualified to help with. I'm very interested in understanding what this experience looks like for you today. And if I don't have something that's gonna help you, I'll let you know. But if I do, is it okay with you if I show you some of the solutions and ideas that we've created that solve those, those kinds of problems? So, you know, like permission-based sales, I think goes a long way. I'm also using sales terms, so I'm a little out of my depth there. But I think like showing the person that you're 
as much invested in protecting your own time as theirs. You're not there to just kind of walk all over them or let them walk all over you by talking about this one solution and being so blinded by it that you're unwilling to listen to anything else. And so like in that sense, salespeople and people who do customer research for a living, that's where there's all this crazy crossover that I started to realize exists out in the world. Researchers, if they go into it blinded, right? If they, so the, the, the technical term is, being, is, is using solution bias. So if they ask the person, instead of asking, tell me about a time when this experience happened, they might ask a, a totally different line of question, like, how would you solve that problem using this solution that I have for you? And the, the, the very valid, legitimate answer might be like, I wouldn't, or I don't know how. But now you've just put them in a container where they're, they can only answer it in the frame of the solution that you've given to them. When they may take you down a rabbit hole, if you're willing to go there with them, where they show you a whole different set of problems that are much more important to them or different ideas for your solution. Again, it's the structure and the expectations going into sales, same as in the product world. There are expectations that because we began a conversation, it has to end in a win that looks like getting that person's money. When the greatest win could be deciding that there's not a fit to work together. Because, man, what? I, thank you. I'll take that hour and I'll go and talk with a person that could use does have the problem that I solve for. Or I'll just go and have a snooze or spend some time with my wife. <laughs> there are better uses of your time than wasting a prospect's time so that you can fulfill a quota of busy work. So th this is the, th the thing that I, I struggle with. And you touched on it just then. There is this wealth of insight in the customer information and customer conversations that your customer success team or your support team or your operations people are having. But for some reason, sales organizations seem to obsess um, with cold, new uh, direct new business. Um, and they ignore the wealth of data and insight that they already have within their own organization. When you start a project with a client, are you ever delving into that CRM information to look at what customers are already saying to them? Because I suspect there's bucket loads of insight in there. Yeah, sure. Yeah. I mean, when I first started get understanding the, the power of talking to your customers, not just in the sense of selling them something, but in, in learning from them, I didn't realize that the gold were the problems that they were having. I was always looking for the transactional data in the sense of like, tell me all the wonderful things that are happening. That's good. It's good for the ego, I suppose. But the real gold is tell me about how this thing is failing you. Tell me about your unmet needs. Tell me about how you use this thing in unexpected ways. That's where opportunity exists. You can use data for sure. You can look at the usage of the software or, the, or whatever products and services you're selling to find those from like a macro level, find the opportunities that might exist already. I think I'm a little biased to believe that you. it's not an it's not a data or live conversations. I think it's an and. So I think like use the data in your CRM, use the analytics and metrics packages that you have to find trends, then go and talk to five customers and understand the why behind the what. I think that's where, the, that's where you can really gain leaps and bounds in terms of being armed with information and being sort of like 10 miles down the road or 10 kilometers down the road by the time you do get on a, a conversation with a sales prospect. Interesting. Bob Mester, 
talks about um, meeting the customer at the right stage in their buying journey, turning up at their struggling moments and helping them navigate those so that when they move from passive to active looking, you're pretty much the only show in town. And certainly uh, in terms of my own performance, that focus has definitely improved conversion rates, shortened sales cycles, increase the probability of closing, increase the initial order value as well. Yeah, you know what that reminds me of? So um, something I've learned to do as a salesperson to that point is it depends how much you want to educate your market. So you may decide that I'm willing to educate to this point, but for these people that are like from chapters zero to four, I'm uninterested because there's so many things they need to get through in order to be a prospect that's going to eventually qualify to become a customer of mine. But I'm willing to educate them from this point. And that, with with reps and with experience, I think what you get really clear on are the false beliefs people have about the problem space, maybe, and certainly the solution space. So that looks like customer testimonial videos where you're saying, you know, like where you address it head on. You say, like, a lot of customers get stuck have this kind of problem hear from Bob who we helped get from point A to point B. And so like you're allowing people to opt in to that, to that education where they can sort of self-educate and get themselves past some of those false beliefs. So that, you know, like I think the gold for for me that I've been taught from sales coaches is have them 80% sold before you even get on a conversation together. Absolutely. What you've described in, in effect is, At the beginning, let's establish common purpose and clear expectations and boundaries so that we we know what we're trying to accomplish, what we don't want to do, and what our walkaway points are. Then work towards a clear outcome that both of you are pushing towards, because if we're working in concert and in cooperation, rather than at odds with one another, we can save enormous amounts of time and effort. And if there isn't a fit, let's establish that quickly so that we can both spend our time on higher value activity. And if there is, establish, do we wish to move forward or not? Don't leave it up in the air so that uh, either one of us is having to chase or is uncertain because neither one of us wants uncertainty and we don't want to feel exposed and vulnerable because that just raises our level of perceived risk. And I think the problem often is that sellers don't see themselves as their buyer's equal in terms of their business stature. So they abdicate a lot of their control and their power, and they allow themselves to then become part of their buyer's plan. And this is where a lot of the the sales training around no free consulting and never answer a prospect's question unless you answer it with a question, all this kind of stuff has evolved from but human beings don't like that shit it's offensive when a salesperson answers a question with a question when all you need is just a basic answer so you can move forward but equally buyers need to be aware that the problem they bring us is more often than not either a bunch of symptoms or it's nirvana it's never the cause and so we have to work together to co-develop an understanding of the problem first before we start peddling a solution and before the customer is ready to buy. Because I think 
some of the best design thinking sellers I know use models and process and systems to slow the customer down. So I'm really interested in your experience of how more foundational work has helped speed up the decision in the end, but you had to deal with all that pressure from management and leadership to try and put the customer under undue pressure and get them to buy before they're ready. I found success in even, you know, like part of my work that I do is um, a lot of the innovation work that I help groups get through requires a skill called facilitation. And a lot of that looks like designing the space and the time and the activities and like helping people, giving people a sense of calm that this is what we're here to do. This is how I have prepared us for that. And this is where we're going to be by the end of the conversation. So I also use those tools in my sales calls. And so what that looks like is in terms of like speeding up, a lot of that looks like allowing the customer to slow down from a sense of calm to say, hey, okay, so we've got 45 minutes. This is how I've prepared us to spend the time. I sent you a couple things to, to look at in advance. Did you have a chance to look at those? Okay, great. No problem on that one. I'll talk you through it. I'm going to start with a, a few questions. That's going to help me understand if there's something that I can solve for you. And if not, then we should agree that this isn't a good fit and we can, we can save ourselves the last 30 minutes and, and move on. Does that sound like a good, you know, does that sound like a good plan to you? So it's, it's presenting to them that you're invested in honoring both of your time and that you've, you've spent the time to structure the conversation. So one of the skills of design thinking that salespeople can really benefit from is learning that every conversation needs to be designed. And now the benefit to it is the more of these calls that you do, exploratory calls, discovery calls, you're going to get better and better, and it's going to feel like second nature to you. But showing them that you've got a structure to get them from point A to point B and that you're both aligned on a common objective is going to bring their defenses way down and allow them to answer the questions that you have. And that's going to build up your knowledge of the, the problems that they have and the solutions that you may have for them. So for those of you who've listened to the podcast for a while, you'll be familiar with agreeing up front what will happen at the end and working towards common purpose. You need to be your customer's ally. They already have enough adversaries within their own organization, externally, time, context, uh, the environment, the economic conditions. They're in a state of stress. They do not need you to add to that by adding confusion and uncertainty which then raises their levels of perceived risk. You see how what Jay is talking about is about creating buyer safety. It's about creating a safe space so that the buyer can open up. And your job in that facilitation of the conversation is to help them nurture and coax out from them an understanding of their context, their situation, because context is king in all of this. Because the same situation may well be experienced very differently by different buyers. I'm very interested in your experience of that kind of um, experience with your clients, then how you use that to maybe open up new markets, identify unmet needs, and so on. What I was also going to say was, as I was listening to you sort of recap what I said, I was thinking of my early days of selling. 
And I thought that trust looked like me saying things like, I've got no agenda. I'm not here to sell you anything. First of all, leading with that, my alarms would be going way off if somebody says, I got nothing to sell you. Why are we here? But I also misunderstood that being informal and unstructured looked friendly when in fact it actually would stress the buyer out because they'd be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. So what, so in terms of, again, in, in terms of thinking about the benefits of design thinking, it's never needing to be an expert on their business, but being an expert on your process. It's of course, it's helpful to have some domain expertise, but be an expert on your process, know how you want to move them from problem to solution know what questions you're going to ask, know what limiting beliefs or false beliefs they have about that problem space and solution space. Be prepared to share stories and examples. Ask them qualifying questions about those those pushbacks and objections that they have for you. That's all trust building. That's being an expert in your craft as a salesperson. And a lot of it just comes down to structure, to efficiency, use of, of time, to asking great questions. When you dig into the interview process and two customers that you're interviewing um, have different experiences, I'd be very curious about some stories maybe around how that opened up new markets for your customers or identified unmet demand or unmet need. Because from my experience, when you do dig deep and you bother to interview uh, customers with an open mind, then very often they will tell you how to sell more people. There's a couple things that, that I'm thinking about. One is a lot of companies treat sales as a tool instead of as an ally. So there's also some education here for senior leaders, for product people, for marketers to learn how to treat sales as an ally. Because a lot of the time, just like engineers are fed product requirements to be built, I see a lot of organizations treat salespeople as a tool to sell the things that they've spent the last year creating and designing together. And here's a one pager, go sell this thing and be really successful with it. I think that's completely broken. And I think it's broken because organizations don't know how to efficiently bring those people together. So in a design sprint, the biggest, I've, I've run design sprints in the largest companies you can imagine. And the, and the biggest magical moment is when an engineer and someone who works in legal and design and maybe even sales sit together and sketch out an idea together. They visualize the problem, they see it together and they co-create the solution. That's gonna give that salesperson, now they may not be a part of the entire process, but if they're invited into that conversation, at an early stage when design is happening, when the problem within the team is being understood, that salesperson so much more confidence to be able to approach the customer and understand how the team got from problem to solution and be able to meet the customer along that journey as well. I think there's so much power. There's so much missed opportunity in how organizations are structured to empower salespeople by inviting them into the process much earlier on. Well, again, let's be pragmatic about this and think about human beings. Human beings got to the top of the food chain by cooperating. What baffles me is why we've decided to try and create these silos and these 
points of friction and obstacles uh, internally uh, by um, separating these different functions and having them at odds with one another instead of working together towards common cause. Yeah, that's how we got to the top of the food chain, and that's how we'll stay there, not by competing, but by cooperating. That's a big thing to change. Changing how organizations are structured and how they work together is not something that you just change on a dime. There needs to be trust in that. Um, and I think you're right. I think silos get built because if we put like the prototypical salesperson pitted against the busy design and engineer duo, the design and engineer don't, don't want to work with the salesperson in a classic sense because the salesperson is just there to meet their quotas and get the solution that the customer said in, in, a, in a customer support ticket. That salesperson is unwilling to get curious about the actual problem that the customer has. And so the designer and the engineer push the salesperson away or they keep them at arm's distance. They don't invite them into that process. But just the same, the designer and the engineer do the same thing to the salesperson. They assume that they're always going to be armed with solutions. They don't want to talk to them. They just want to go right to the customer. And so, so there's just this like constant friction between those the proxies to the customer and the people building the solutions for the customer. And so that's where speed and structure and efficiency of design thinking becomes a superpower because you, you bring those people together in space in a very highly structured, efficient way, and everyone gets what they want. The salesperson gets to talk like, gets to be interviewed by the product team about the actual problem the customer has. They can see it together. They can interview customers together, and then they can solve those problems together. But from the customer's perspective, doesn't that feel like they're actually investing in me and they give a damn instead of someone's just trying to take my money? Exactly. Yeah. There's a space for the customer to be invited into those conversations as well. And man, I, I can't tell you, the light bulbs that go off the first time a salesperson and an engineer and a researcher sit in a customer interview together and just listen, the magic that happens, like all the walls of that team come down. They realize that they're there to serve the customer. They realize the actual problem that the customer has. They all hear it. They, they hear the same words that empowers them to, to go to market together. Right. So let's get, let's, try and unpack this. We've now managed to pull together a team of a diverse team from our side, and we're going to go and meet the customer. Experience has taught me that only one person speaks, and there's only one captain, because otherwise it tends to get a little bit messy. Unless everybody understands that there is no room for ego, then you've got a structure. So I'm really interested in the planning stage internally prior to going to meet the customer for that interview, where for the first time we've brought this team together and we're going to go and do a design thinking interview with the customer or jobs to be done yeah. with the customer, whichever. And I'm interested in how you prepare. What advice would you give yep. to the audience? Well, I would say don't try to go from zero to 180 in the first session. So if the salesperson, in my experience, Salespeople, account managers, they're very protective of their relations, of their client relationships. And they have a misunderstanding that if the team has a prototype or some potential you know, iteration to the, to the product and they want to test it with the customer, salespeople can misunderstand that to mean that it's done, it's perfect, 
the customer is going to be delighted that the customer is going to buy or upgrade as a result of this conversation. So that that's understanding that we're prototyping to learn, not prototyping to sell. So there's some education that needs to happen. So what I typically do on the first time is I educate the salesperson in terms of how the conversation needs to go. I need to remind them repetitively that this is not a sales call. This is a call. This is a research call so we can learn better about the problem and then solve it in in an effective way. We have some potential ideas. Half of it works. Half of them is untested. That causes a lot of anxiety for, for a lot of salespeople, a lot of like executives, a lot of people that work in healthcare. They're very protective about showing patients and clinicians things that are unfinished, unperfect. So there's a lot of education in terms of what we're trying to do there. And then I'll also, I'll ask for the opportunity to model what that interview should look like. That could look like role-playing with them so that they understand what I'm going for. Or if, if they start to trust me, then I'll say, do you, do you mind? We've got 10 interviews lined up. Do you mind if I take five and you take five and then, and then we compare notes to see how it went. And eventually if, if I'm successful, the salesperson is understanding the tools that I've used, and now they're using them to, to do the work that they do. Okay. If a salesperson breaks ranks in the course of the interview and starts to intervene, how do you bring rein them in in a nurturing way, which doesn't alienate them and doesn't send the wrong message to the client? Yeah, I make it about the customer. So I, so I tell them, like, look. Have you ever been to a job interview where more than one person interviewed you? Most people have been through that experience. How did that go? How did that feel? Probably felt a little bit more intimidating than when you were one-on-one with that hiring manager. Same thing is going on. No matter how much we tell this customer that it's not, there's no wrong answers, we're not interviewing you, we're trying to understand about the product, they're going to be intimidated. And the minute it goes from a one-on-one conversation to a two-on-one or three-on-one, they're going to clam up and they're just going to start to give us information that is biased, untrue. They're just going to try to please us. And then we'll eventually wind up spending a lot of money building the wrong thing. So it's best for the customer experience if just one person is talking. Do you want to take this, this interview? Go for it. I'll tell you how to do it. I'll tell you the questions we're interested in asking. And then I'll give you coaching afterwards if that works for you okay i know this is throwing you right under the bus but um there's nothing like a little bit of live r&d um could you take me through so let's pretend i'm um a a prospect and it can be for your business or whatever uh, but i'd love to hear the process that you go through of at least introducing the first few questions around how to get the, uh, the ball rolling so I'm interviewing, you're my customer, and I'm yeah. trying to, I'm doing a discovery call with you, almost yeah. like a, a salesperson. Absolutely. So we, we've done the upfront agreement. Uh, we've agreed to all of that. So now we're getting into the questions themselves to understand the problem. Perfect. Okay. So first, I'm just going to show you the five sort of categories of questions that 99% of my discovery calls look like I have five parts to them. One are contextual questions. Then there are problem-focused questions. Third are behavioral questions. Fourth are prioritization questions. And fifth are solution-focused questions. So contextual questions might sound like, Marcus, so I'm selling you today, a, or I'm trying to sell you, a new ab roller. 
So I might start by saying, hey, Marcus, um, you know, I give you the structure of, of, of the call. And I'd say, tell me what your home gym looks like. What does that look like today? Uh, it's do you my actually want to role play it? <laughs> okay, let's do it. Okay, sorry, I interrupted you. Go ahead. Tell it's me what your my, home It's my living room like floor. And a year. Okay. Okay. How often do you work out? Never. Ever. Okay. Well, tell me a little bit about like what draws you to working out. Like how how did you become interested in having this call with me today? I saw myself in the mirror and I realized I've turned into a blancmange and I'm diabetic. I've not really been looking after myself for the last 55 years. And if I want to live longer than the next five, I probably have to do something about it. Yeah. So how does that impact your life today? Generally, I've, I mean, I've learned to live within the parameters of being um, a, a bit of a sloth. But it means that I tend to be very sedentary. I get quite tired. My sleep patterns are interrupted. Okay. So because of your more sedentary life, you find that does it sounds like your energy is low, you're maybe withdrawn a little bit more than you'd like to be. You have a, a space in your home to exercise, but maybe from a morale perspective, you're just not you you haven't yet invested the time in using that. Is that right? That's probably fair. So, what do you do today to solve your? I don't know what term you use to describe your belly. What are you doing today to, to work on that? I recently taken on some help with a functional medicine practitioner. So that's altered my diet. I'm starting to work on my sleep. So I've got yellow glasses at night to take out blue light and a bright light in the morning to give me blue light to wake me up and try and resettle my circadian rhythms. Whilst my daughter's dog is here, I do walk the dog more frequently than, or I walk, uh, which generally I don't. Those are the things that I'm acting on at the moment. And then a bunch of supplements that the, uh, the practitioners recommended to try and sort out my gut microbiome. Okay. So how important is it then for you to feel healthy in terms of your gut health, your, you know, your shape, your size, your, your health? How important is that to you? It's not been a priority, though it's always been a nagging doubt. I mean, my mother popped me on a diet uh, when I was three. That was my first one. So this has been an ongoing battle throughout my life. But I've never found anything that was able to con to bring it under control because I've always gone through, you know, I've always been overweight and I had surgery to solve it and then had to have that reversed when it almost killed me and so on. So I do want to have a solution, but I'm very skeptical of yeah. most solutions out there because they don't really treat the problem at its cause. They've tended to try and offer me a, a solution uh, without understanding why. So Marcus, it sounds like this is really important to you. It sounds like you've tried a ton of things to get your, your belly weight under control. You understand that it's important, but each time you try the solution, it feels like it's a long process. Maybe it's been expensive. It takes a long time. Would you be interested then? I think, you know, like I've, I've worked with a number of clients just like you, and our solution has, able, has helped them to knock off about 10 inches from their waistline. It takes about five weeks 
and it costs less than $1,000. Is that something that you'd be interested in hearing some ideas from me about? Sure. What I've done, go out of role play, is I basically mm-hmm. like spent, now I would have, I would have pulled on those a lot more, right? So like yeah. I would have really drawn out the pain from you. Like you, you mentioned things about mom, you mentioned things about spending money. In fact, this is a great example that I learned a lot from. There's an example out there around cool sculpting, which I just learned about. It's kind of like running away with the show right now. Cool sculpting, it's like they hold this gun over you where they just kind of, I don't know what it does, but it makes your body dissolve its own fats and you kind of just eliminate them on your own. There's no surgery. It doesn't take a year, like a, a diet or a workout program. So it feels like a silver bullet because it's getting to a dream outcome. It's because of all the case studies and the pictures that I could show you about how it works. I could show you the machine and how harmless it looks. I could tell you that there's no surgery. So the perceived likelihood of achievement is very high. It's also something that happens in about a 30-minute session. And then within two weeks, you have significant results. And so your effort and sacrifice is really low. So dream outcome times perceived likelihood of achievement over time delay and effort and sacrifice equals value. So what I've done is I would pull a lot of the problems that you're experiencing to really push on the importance of that problem, how you're solving it today, and then show you a different solution that would achieve the value that you're going for in less pain, less time, less frustration. Very interesting. Okay, so we talked about five types of questions. You've got contextual, problem-solving, time-related. Remind me the others. Behavioral, right? So understanding yeah. what you do today. And then diving into some of those solutions. So acknowledgement is really, really important, right? So you want to spend time acknowledging that the person is not just completely unaware that they don't exist in a bubble. Tell me about how you solve those today. What's working with those solutions? So solution-focused questions are important too because it's active listening. Oh, okay, so you've hired a trainer. What worked about that? Got it. It was expensive. You had to meet them at the gym. You felt embarrassed to be at the gym. Got it. Understood. What else? What worked? What didn't work? Right. So like going through that whole process, but that's like them talking about solutions is my entry point into my solution, because now I don't dismiss that they tried other things. And what if they tried cool sculpting and had a horrible experience? That's a flag for me to say, like, okay, before I just like assume they don't they don't know what cool sculpting is and present it as Nirvana. Now I've got a chance to like unpack that some more with them, because maybe they just had a bad one off experience. So it's contextual, problem-focused, behavioral questions, prioritization, super important. They could spend a lot of time. You could have spent all that time in the world and said to me, "Yeah, I'm totally comfortable in my own skin. I don't care. I don't mm-hmm. care at all. Uh, you know, I'd, it'd be great to look better, but I'd much rather, um, you and I are both losing our hair. I'd much rather have a full head of hair. That's much more important. <laughs> Do you have anything? <laughs> Can you help me regrow my hair instead? Let's talk about that. In all honesty, that's, that's like, one I just, thing I wouldn't have back because I really like not having hair now. It's so much easier. Okay. <laughs> Fair enough. One of the few benefits of aging. But it brings up a question you asked a, a little bit earlier that I just want to like double stitch on real quickly. You were asking about the customer and finding new markets, finding new opportunities. I think if you go through that process, you're going to hear new 
spins on the way that customer presents the solution that you're solving and the problem that you're that you're trying to solve for them. I think that's where maturity of knowing that there could be other potential opportunities that your product is not solving for today. And that the mindset that I like to use there is to treat everything as a prototype. And that's also a hard pill to swallow. So like when a company has spent millions developing a solution, thinking of it as a prototype, what do you mean it's a prototype? We're, you know, we're 10 million into this thing. It better be. But like if you do in your own mind, treat every solution that you have as a prototype to learn about other, other markets, other use cases, other domains that it could be applied to. Now you have this sort of like con- consistent, curious mindset where you're always listening for new opportunities. Jay, this has genuinely been a fascinating conversation. I would love to have you back if you're willing. It's been great for me too. I appreciate all the, the questions. I appreciate you uh, talking me through your home workout situation. thank you tell me this you've got a golden ticket and you can go back in time and whisper in the ear of the idiot jay age 23 what one choice bit of advice would you give him and that you know he'd have probably have ignored but would have been useful the phrase that sort of like followed me throughout my career that i was unwilling to listen to in my 20s and my 30s maybe I started to listen to in my my early 40s, was learn to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. Hmm. Nice. I get that. That's the really interesting stuff. And that's what customers are paying you for. They're paying you for the outcome, which is to move away from the problem that they have and move towards a better future. And it's our job to help facilitate that. It's not to convince, it's not to cajole, it's not to sell to them. Our job is to help them work out for themselves why they want the solution and have them to volunteer themselves so that you're not putting them under pressure. Fair? Yeah, agreed. And so, and, and like, as far as bringing it back full circle to design thinking and, and frameworks like jobs to be done, There's interesting opportunities to sell people vitamins, things that make their existing solutions better, but there's so much more opportunity in the painkillers, the ability to eliminate pain from people's people's lives. There's just, there's more money to be made there. There's more value to offer the market there. That's why, you know, really getting under a a good understanding of, of the problem space is so helpful. This ties in very clearly with the neuroscience on a scale of one to a hundred, if a customer perceives the risk to be a hundred and you can reduce it from a hundred to 50, that is not as powerful as eliminating the risk and moving it from three to zero. Interestingly enough, Mm. because our brains are wired to try and eliminate risk. And I think the whole design thinking approach to the interview and having a team of people involved in that shared experience of helping the customer to understand their problem and then co-develop a solution that um, looks at it through the various lenses so that you end up with a more elegant solution and fewer negative unintended consequences, that has to be a better outcome than trying to peddle them something and squeeze them into your sales process and force them to buy your product. So what final conclusion would you, or a bit of advice would you give to the audience when it comes to thinking as your customer? You know, like, I think it's 
It's so helpful to think about your own experience as a customer. There are plenty of buying decisions that you're making day in and day out. Think about your journey of going from being aware of a problem that exists in your life to it ranking and getting greater in priority. There needs to be a, a, a solve to this problem. To you going and looking for solutions to it, to you comparing existing solutions, to then you deciding on a few and being willing to entertain that those solutions might be a fit for you. You have to go through all of these steps to be ready for a solution. If that's the case for you, why would it be different for your own customer? So like understanding the journey that they've been on, the solutions that they've tried, the, the importance of the problem that you're there to talk about together, those are all like really important steps to to walk the customer through and to be clear on yourself before you move into selling and solution. I think it's really important at that point to also recognize as a buyer, when you've gone through the buying journey, you didn't just get a cold call and you say, yes, thank you very much. Here's my credit card. There was a whole process in that making space. You probably tripped over something in your LinkedIn feed and you probably spoke to someone on LinkedIn and connected with them. And there was a bit of exchange and messages and then everything went very quiet. And then there was a little bit of content analysis and then you did some private shares. And as you started to increase your understanding of the problem and you were beginning to learn how, you were still passively looking, uh, but then you probably attended a webinar, swapped a few messages, then something changed internally that moved you from passive to active looking. Now, if you think of all of those steps I've just described, these are not sales motions. This is stuff that you need to have done weeks or months in advance in order to build the relationship and create the conditions for trust. So in a future episode, what I'd love to do is talk to you about how you use design thinking with existing customers in order to help them advance their business and be their ally, be their partner, their growth partner, if you like. Uh, is that something you'd be open to? Yeah, that sounds like fun. Sounds like, uh, sounds like home to me. <laughs> Excellent. Um, this has been wonderful, Jay. Thank you so much. How can people get hold of you? Our website, newhaircut.com. We actually have a, a couple of great webinars coming up where we're teaching groups about problem framing, which is a great discovery framework for getting comfortable operating in the problem space and moving quickly from business directive to validated customer problem. So we do a lot of webinars, we do training workshops, but newhaircut.com is a good place to start. Wonderful. Jay Malone, thank you. Thank you, Marcus. Great to be here with you. So this is Marcus Kauke signing off once again from the Inquisitor podcast. If you found this insightful and useful, then please like, comment, share, subscribe, comment, get in touch with Jay. For God's sake, get in touch with him if you're trying to develop your products and to innovate in your market. And innovation is absolutely at the heart of your uh, success in the future, especially going into this downturn economy. If you want to get hold of me, there's links in the blurb, um, marcus at laughs-laughs.com. And uh, if you want to talk to me about coaching or training, there's a link in all of the blurbs as well. Uh, in the meantime, stay safe and happy selling. Bye-bye. <laughs>